Welcome to Bleacher Blum, a sports podcast for baseball fans. Now, the current master of banter for the Houston Astros television broadcast team, Blummer. Welcome back, fans. You are in the seats. Granted, they're the cheap seats way out in the bleachers, maybe beyond the fences, but you are on Bleacher Blums. And this podcast is being brought to you by St. Arnold's Brewery, Houston's oldest craft brewery. And guess what, Tuttle? This weekend, I got to hang out at the One Pot Challenge. I got to judge it, and I got to celebrate local chefs and restaurants that took the took on the challenge of cooking bites, chilies, pastelayas, and various other foods, only using one pot. They put on a lot of great events, and it's pretty impressive. And it is a pretty impressive feat, and the venue is prime for this kind of event. So keep up to date with events and beer releases at St. Arnold's by going to starnold.com. And if you are curious and you do get to St. Arnold's, make sure you go and check out maybe the lawnmower, the art car, the new art car double IPA. Those are just a couple of my favorites. Uh, maybe even throw in a Citrodos IPA in there and have a good time. They've got great food. It's a great venue view of downtown you can go to starnolds.com or starnold.com to check out all of their beers and their events right in downtown Houston and with that being said it has been a rather quiet week there's been some rumors that maybe maybe the Astros have picked a manager that has a little bit of left coast connection to it but we will get to that later in the show and of course right now I don't host this show by myself I've got a good friend a great co-host in David Tuttle my man David Tuttle anything exciting going on this week how you doing man I'm doing great yeah no a little bit of a quiet week from a baseball standpoint obviously uh, there was a kind of a cloud over the sports world with with the passing of Kobe and I know we'll get into that as well you know it's funny right when you said one pot challenge the first thing that came into my mind was what in the heck is a one pot challenge? And then I went, oh, one pot challenge. Yeah, one pot, you know, one pot cooking. It made it made perfect sense, but it took a second to uh, to kind of register. And I, I'd be curious to see how creative people get with like a one pot challenge. Um, I mean, all kinds of food. It sounds like. No, it's pretty impressive. And I mean, obviously the chilies and the roasts, and you know, because we've all cooked in a crock pot. Crock pot. I don't know if you have. But, uh, you know, my wife does a good job. I've actually made some really good short ribs in a crock pot. Uh, we do our tacos in the crock pot uh, if we get a good salsa and stuff like that. But these, you know, to make a chili good, you have to put in a little bit extra. And you know what else is kind of cool about the one pot challenge that I forgot to tell you about is that they had to use a St. Arnold beer in it. So there was a lot of Santo. There was a lot of uh, raspberry AF in there that gave it a little bit of sweetness to it. So you, people are cooking tortillas in the bottom of it. They're hard boiling eggs in it, and then they're creating you know three other pieces to go along with it. So it was it was pretty entertaining and very good. Well, that's the part that I would look for is trying to do kind of regular food in there. Yeah, you know, having a, a large family, our family of five, your family of six. I mean, my wife and I working, kind of chasing ourselves around. Um, I do like the crock pot. Uh, the Instapot kind of came and went yeah. for us. Same with the fryer. Like I'd much rather just come home and grill meat and get some vegetables. And, you know, you can kind of cook up many things fairly quickly. I-, I agree with you. Short ribs, I think, stay on the list. And then tacos, like one pot tacos, because you can come home and just scoop yeah. it onto a tortilla. But I have not found success you know, something that you're like, yes, I got to make that again in the one pot. I think either the new crock pots are like four to six hours. If you leave it in there eight to 10 hours, it's a little long. Um, I do make a good one pot chili, but that stays away from 
uh, that stays away from the actual crock pot. That's like, hey, let me get out the big, uh, yeah. the big pot, and you know, start with beer. Beer is always in there. I've never used St. Arnold beer in there, so that might be well, a we start. Can, we can make that happen. Yeah, we're gonna have to make that happen. But you know, good meat, good onions, garlic, and you know, you got to start there. And, and of course, spicy. I got to make it a little bit spicy. But uh, but that that's actually a good thing to have the weekend before the Super Bowl, the one pot challenge. So hopefully, they post those recipes and uh, and give. Give people some creative ideas as we uh, we head towards the weekend of the big game. That would be pretty good. And you know what? Some of the issue with the one pot and the crock pot cooking for me sometimes is, is that when you put 9,000 things in it, it all tastes like the same thing. It gets kind of, so, like you said, if it goes a little bit too long, sometimes the te texture gets a little, a little mushy. And that could create some issues. Are you are you a guy that is a food separator on your plate, or do you just throw the whole the whole thing together on your plate? Like at, like at Thanksgiving, is everything together, or do you have like sectional food items on there that can't touch? Yeah, you know, I'm a together person. It's funny. I always thought that that was a kid thing. You know, my kids are like, <laughs> man, they, they don't even want an apple slice. That's why next I ask because we're pizza. around kids all the time. Yeah, they don't they don't even want an apple slice next to a celery, and I'm like, those are kind of in the same category. No, like Thanksgiving, as a matter of fact, I've gotten it where, and Thanksgiving's a little different, but I'm like, if I, even at a good restaurant and I got a steak and I got some mashed potatoes and some asparagus, like I like that all in there together. And, you know, with, with Thanksgiving, I always thought it took me a while to get the cranberry in there, but if you can go really salty with the potatoes and the turkey and the Ooh. gravy, and you add that dollop of cranberry in there, yep. man, that hits the taste buds just right. So I, I'm a, I'm a throw it all together, but I, but I think to hit your point, when you throw it in the pot and it, it, so for me, it's one flavor and it's one texture and one <laughs> flavor and one texture is not really what I'm going for. You know, I, I think what you, you know, that's what you're just saying. I, this is not a crush on the one pot challenge. No, not I, at all. I, I that's think why what, I think it's unique. Yeah. But I think what we're opening ourselves up for, you know, in the mailbag are, are going to be like people sending us their favorite recipes and uh, like, oh no, you guys just haven't tried the one pot this or the crock yep. pot this. I'm like, eh. I think I have. I think I've kind of made my decision on that. But uh, I guess if uh, if you want to get at me at Real David Tuttle or at BleacherBlums.com in the mailbag and send us maybe your your favorite recipe or something unique in there, I'd be willing to give it a give it a whirl. Yeah, it better be damn good too. Don't don't fire out. Hey, put a couple of potatoes and a carrot in there with a chicken <laughs> breast. I want I want like details no, no, on I, what makes it so good. I'm with you on that. Very clear that just don't. You know, don't send us another short rib recipe, you know, please. <laughs> yeah, I'm glad that we are smiling, by the way, because I had to take a note. And actually, there was somebody on Twitter that actually added me. And I'm just going to say that her name is Sherry. And I think Sherry will know who she is because she's an avid supporter of uh, the Astros. She's an avid supporter of David Tuttle and I. And again, if you want to get to us on Twitter, it's at Real David Tuttle at Blummer27, and you will, we do a pretty good job of interacting. I know that uh, Tuttle got on there with the girl dad stuff and uh, posting pictures of his twin daughters, but she actually brought up, after the Kobe Bryant incident, uh, she actually brought up a really good point, and it kind of got me thinking a little bit, and I want to ask you, Tuttle, has this been the worst year ever, and it's only January 29th? We've had the Astros consequences. We've had three manager firings because of the sign-stealing saga that's going on. Australia's up in flames. There's earthquakes in the Caribbean. Supposedly, World War III is about to start. Kobe passes, and we still haven't figured out what the hell's going on with the coronavirus. Is this the worst year ever? 
You know what's funny? This is what people crush me about uh, often on this podcast because they always think, oh, Tuttle, you're the one that writes the ship and brings it back. I, I just, <laughs> this is not, this is not intentional. This is just innate for me, personality-wise. I'm just, I'm just an even keel guy. I mean, I think if that's a little uh, overreactionary, if that's a, if that's a word or a statement. Are you statement. calling me overreactionary? How well, dare you? I, if you're agreeing with Sherry, then yeah. But maybe that was Sherry <laughs> planting the seed. I'm not really sure. And and well, I, you know, yeah, and, it could be getting played. Yeah. And and I'm trying to get some some more downloads. So I'm going to mention Joe Rogan here again because he gets a million downloads of podcasts. But <laughs> but Joe Rogan will often have authors of books on that talk about you know. Um, this is probably the best time in human history to be alive. You know, I mean, if you, you do you know, have, yeah, you know, Keep going. I, I like it. No, but 500 to a thousand years ago, you walk out of your, you know, or maybe longer than that, 50,000 years ago, you walk out of your cave and a saber tooth tiger takes you down and you're done. Um, you know, you had to, you had to eat a plant and go, Oh, is this healthy or is, uh, and you know, princess bride, you drop dead, you know, Iocane powder. I mean, it's just, you know, the wars, things like that. I mean, I just think this is probably one of the best times to be alive. Obviously, um, today's the anniversary of um, something I remember growing up, obviously, one of the uh, shuttle explosions. Thank you and, for bringing that up, because yeah, that was so a big deal you, from my childhood, too, and right. especially here in Houston. And you can throw that into this year. I mean, obviously, that didn't happen yeah. this year, but you can throw that into, you know, the, the January. You can you can add that into this equation, I should say, of, you know, what's worse or what's better. But I, I just think we need to take a step back and say, look, there's a lot of stuff going on. There always is a lot of stuff going on. And, um, you know, obviously, because this is a pretty Astros heavy podcast, I think a lot of people would take that Astros sign ceiling scandal, especially non-baseball fans, right out of there and say, <laughs> OK, the coronavirus is bad. You know, the Kobe Bryant thing, you know, there are some other issues. But, you know, it's it's a little premature to say this is the worst year ever. Obviously, there have been some things happening, but uh you know, I just think that that's a that's a big reaction to, you know, kind of everyday life. And there we just got to plug plug along and uh, and, you know, be thankful for what we have and thankful for the things that we are able to uh, to experience. And, and, you know, we talk about it every podcast about the first responders in the military. I mean, they're they're there are ways to make ourselves feel better. But obviously, there are certain people that um you know, are putting themselves in harm's way and having a tougher time of it than we are. And I think that uh, I think that it's it's a little early to say that this is the worst year ever. So you are so kind and passionate and responsible and level headed and positive. God, you make me feel good. There you Thank go you for that, David Tuttle. And that will do it for a little bit of an open. Do you have anything that you would like to get off your chest here to start things off uh, here on Bleacher Blums? I don't. I think we got to uh, get into the mailbag. Otherwise, we're never going to get through this hour. So let's start with the mailbag. Um, I'm starting to notice that we need some of our writers and our listeners to head out to share our podcast with a friend because the uh, the people that write in are the people that keep writing in, which is great. <laughs> so we do appreciate you listening. I'm kind of joking, but uh, I'm going to uh, read an email from uh, looks like uh, Blake. Blake A. He's written in before. And um, this one, I, I like it. It takes us off sign stealing, takes us off some of the depressing things that, uh, that you just mentioned. And he says, after playing a 162-game schedule, how do ballplayers attack the offseason? 
How long do guys take away from throwing or hitting? Do you guys do a lot of workouts in preparation for spring training? I know that I'm with my daughter's softball team. We took a month off, and then we've been practicing one day a week, and now we're about to ramp up to multiple days a week. I would think after a full season, a good two-month break would be nice. Believe it, he says. I like it. Yep. Blake knows what he's talking about. you got to believe it. No, you know what? It's it's interesting. You know, a big league season without playoffs usually ends right around that October 1st. And, you know, what's great if you have a family is that you're looking forward to Halloween. And then you kind of get back into the gym a little bit. It's I think it's great for guys to take some time off. And I was a guy that would take a good two, three weeks off at the end of the season and just kind of integrate myself back into the family routine, get to know the kids again, get to know my wife again and find out what their routine is and try and mix in and be as responsible as I can as a parent, but also knowing that I am working towards something later on. And obviously I played for 14 years. I played up until the age of 39. So from that 26 year old uh, age on, it seemed like my off seasons got shorter and shorter and shorter because it took me longer and longer to get ready for the following season. But I would usually take about the two or three weeks off and then I'd get right back in the gym and do cardio do the weightlifting and really try and build up some of that mass that I lost during the course of a season because everything that you do in the off season gets you ready for spring training. And then spring training is a process to get your timing and rhythm ready for the season. And then hopefully all the work you did in those off season months starts to come off you as you play through a regular season, which is, you know, you can weight loss and things like that fatigue. So those are the things you're trying to combat and kind of put the weight uh, and, and, uh, some of the energy in reserve over the off season, but it would usually be November, December, heavy in the gym, weights and uh, cross training, whatever it may be. And then after the first of the year, all of a sudden I've got my bat, my glove, my baseball, and I'm out there playing catch, hitting, taking ground balls and getting in baseball shape. Yeah, I don't have much to add to that. I, I think it's a great question. And, and, and I think, as we know, with the money that athletes make these days, uh, it's finally a, a full year around jo our full time job year round. That is and an I excellent point. Yeah, and I think guys tend to stay in better shape. And we, we can go back to, obviously, like Ted Williams and Joe DiMaggio, and you see these, like, spots where they went to World War II and, you know, took some time off, and then they came back, or guys that worked at the sawmill. I think even as far back as, like, Mickey Mantle used to do, like, lumbering or, you know, lumberjack stuff in the offseason. And, uh, yeah, I mean, these guys weren't working full-time at that job. And, you know, baseball, although they always say it's a game and it's fun, I mean, these guys were the best at the of the best, but they also, you know, were enrolled in the military and did other things. We've long surpassed that. And I think, yeah, guys tend to stay in shape all year round. They don't fall out of shape and have to get back into shape. But really, to answer his question, you already hit the nail on the head, you know, six weeks to 10 weeks off of like from throwing and hitting and, you know, doing that thing that, you know, you do every single day during the season so that you can actually add muscle, spend some time with your family. Um, and maybe, as you said, do some cross training to kind of, you know, to, to stay in, you know, build, I guess, build up the, uh, endurance that you're going to need for the upcoming season. So, all right, that moves us on to the next question here, uh, from Jim, Jim N. This question is for both of you. Do you think there's an unwritten code among athletes, whether professional or otherwise, to not publicly disclose so-called illegal activities of teammates or even opposing players? In baseball, this could be illegal sign stealing, PED use, bat corking, illegal pine tar use by a pitcher, 
Even though an athlete may not participate in these activities, he or she may, may know about them. Yet, it seems these activities are rarely made public and the perpetrators called out. Is it an athlete code to not say anything? Is there an unwritten code? What are the consequences of an athlete who breaks it? Well, I, you know, I obviously think this is a relevant topic because uh, I, I kind of outed Mike Fears last, Mike Fires last time, but, um, or I didn't out him. I was, uh, I was getting on him about, you know, how it's going to feel to have him in the clubhouse. And I've said this before, but I think Las Vegas got the, you know, what happens in Vegas stays in Vegas from either an, uh, a clubhouse or a locker room or something somewhere. But there was, I mean, I, I, I haven't been in the locker room for about 15 to 18 years. Um, you've been retired a shorter period of time, but I spent 20 years in the locker room and there was the unwritten rule, which is what happens in the clubhouse stays in the clubhouse. And Jeff and I could get ourselves in a lot of hot water, but we could have many, many, many stories about people that we all know uh, and things that went on and not all unethical and not all blasphemous, but certainly, you know, things that are somewhat funny and asinine and silly that uh, aren't really for public um, consumption. And I think that um, most workplaces have that. I mean, isn't, you know, Edward Snowden is still hiding out somewhere because he was a whistleblower in his workplace. Essentially, he outed what was going on in there. And I'm not saying it's right. I'm just saying that fraternity and that human nature of working together and being together and having each other's back probably fosters a little of this. But there is absolutely, without even getting into specific, there is absolutely an unwritten code. Yeah, I agree. There is an unwritten code. And, you know, what's interesting about the sign stealing for me is that there it was out in the open. It was right behind the dugout where the monitor was. So it's not something that you could avoid if you were a, if you were a pitcher or if you were a player or a, that didn't want to be involved in it. Because that's how I feel like, you know, <clears throat> I played with guys that corked their bat. I'm not going to tell you who they are on this podcast, but I'm going to tell you that I played with guys in the major leagues who corked their bat. But I never saw the guy who corked the bat. I never saw them cork the bat. You know, I wasn't going to be, and I think guys understood, you know, the understanding of that unwritten rule of kind of, you know, hear no evil, see no evil, speak no evil. You know, so if I don't hear it, see it, I'm not going to say anything about it, even though I may know about it. I'm not going to throw that guy under the bus. Um, maybe it's because of my own morality, or maybe it's because of my own fear of the repercussions if I tell this guy, or if I, if I out him and put you know, my name to a, a blown whistle, I'm not sure. You know, I can't really attest to that because I haven't been in that situation or I haven't been in a situation where somebody's done something egregious enough to where I'm like, holy shit, I got to say something. This is brutal. You know, I never witnessed a guy doing steroids, even though I knew they were happening in our in a couple of my clubhouses. Um, it, it, I didn't feel it was my spot to go out there and correct it. And again, it wasn't something that was illegal within baseball when I was playing. And I know you can attest to that too, Tuttle. But at the same time, I did not want the reputation of being that guy who would rat somebody out, so to speak. I, if I had any problems, there were two things that I felt that I was able to do. If I had a problem with a guy, I'd go to the guy. I'm like, hey, dude, I don't like the way you're, you know, let's just take sign stealing, for example. I don't like the way you're doing it. I don't think this is appropriate. Or I talk it out and, hey, don't you feel like you're kind of cheating the system a little bit by doing this? Or go to the manager. I mean, the manager, that's part of the manager's job is to be able to handle these things in-house before it gets out of control. But I also may be throwing, you know, A.J. Hinch under the bus right now. 
because he was in that managerial position and maybe somebody came to him or maybe they didn't, I don't know, but he didn't take advantage of controlling the situation. But I truly feel that that's where the manager needs to step up and show some responsibility within the clubhouse and create an environment where his players can come talk to him and say, hey, man, I'm not, I don't agree with what's going on. How do we handle this moving forward? And we can get into that deeper later. The other question that you're uh, raising right there is, you know, how much influence would the manager have in a scenario like <laughs> that when it's when it's multiple players? Um, I do have a uh, a good friend of mine who's a an ex major leaguer. We have a few of those who um, did not do steroids. He's one of the most ethical guys I know, and was in the uh, the bathroom stall and the syringe in the stall next to him, like dropped down and hit the floor <laughs> and kind of slid into a stall. Oh hey! And he just like scooched it back into the other stall. He knew who was in there. Um, he knows very well like that that was not um, something that he was interested in. But as you pointed out, they weren't testing for that, and it wasn't illegal in terms of the um, Major League Baseball Players Association at the time. And I don't think he ever, you know, kind of spoke about that except on a personal level later on. I mean, he told me about it, but he he still didn't tell me the player. So even among players who weren't in the clubhouse, it's not for him to say, oh, yeah, this guy specifically was doing it. He just knew that that guy was doing it. And that was his choice, um, uh, the player's choice to do it, but also his choice not to say anything. So I think, I mean, gosh, I think we both answered the question saying, is there an unwritten rule? There certainly is, because you and I are talking about this like, there's something out there that would keep us from doing it. But I, I think it's just a long ingrained kind of indoctrination into what goes on in the clubhouse. Yeah. And if it's not hurting me, um, you know, then maybe it's something that I shouldn't be involved in or, you know, I'm going to mind my own business. Now, I know there's listeners out there, including people that know me personally, that think I should feel stronger about that, if, especially if I felt like my career was, you know, hindered or pushed down because guys in my clubhouse were doing steroids and getting promoted. Yeah, but at the same time, you're an 18 to 25-year-old kid. I mean, let's be honest, we're, you know, we're. I'm not saying we're immature, but at the same time, we're also... You know, in a clubhouse, you're playing your dream sport. You are chasing a dream. You are one of a half percent of human beings on this earth who are literally playing out your dream. So, you know, there is, I think that's part of the fear I've, you know, I'm kind of mentioning is, is not only do, do I get outed within my peers, but I also get outed within the organization. Am I putting my career at risk and my opportunity at risk by being the guy that calls these people out? So it's kind of a tough, you know, it's a, it's a bubble that we're living in, and that's why it's an unwritten rule inside that baseball bubble. Absolutely. And I already, we can, this is a great question. Obviously it got us talking and uh, I mean, uh, I already brought up a guy that played uh, with the Cincinnati Reds during the strike year and he decided to cross and then um, kept his job after the, the players association and the, and the union kind of came together and had their agreement in place and he made the big leagues and he's still not part of the players association. And he was, you know, just a guy in the bullpen on some of those teams. And I think guys still held it against him for crossing. So, I mean, that's something that's not necessarily as egregious as PEDs or sign stealing. That's something that was a personal decision. He decided to, um, you know, cross the, the picket line as it were. And, uh, he still was paying the price for that. So, all right, next question. Let's see, do we want to go this way? Um, I'm just going to read it. There's a couple different ones. Um, here and yeah, I'm just gonna read it anyway. It's a long one. So Shelly, this might be Shelly, the same one you brought up. So no, Sherry. Oh, that was Sherry. Okay, so Shelly, this is somebody different. Ha. Huh. All right. 
Hey, obviously, you can tell I really prep these questions, folks. I mean, I'm just like, woo, I got it right here. This is the a long filter one. is amazing. Yeah, man, I got the guy that goes through my emails for me, uh, <laughs> namely me, does a really bang up job before we sit down in front of the microphone. Um, I know you guys are sick of talking about the Astros. Well, you know, sort of. But I just wanted to add one thing. At least one of us. Yeah. Growing up, I lived and breathed Astros baseball. They were my world. I was the only one of my friends who had Craig Biggio posters and the Killer Bees posters all over my walls and instead of the latest teen heartthrob. I don't know if you're the only one, but maybe amongst your friends. Yeah. My dream was to be you, Blummer. I wanted to be the color commentary for the Astros. Obviously, I didn't do that. I'm pretty sure I was their second choice after you. But I got into sports television because of them, and I've worked at ESPN and NBC Sports Boston, just to name a few. I even interned with the Astros when I was in college and met you. But I don't expect you to remember me. I still work in sports, but now in St. Louis. And the hardest thing I've had to deal with, um, with scandal-wise, is the people here telling me my team is a bunch of cheaters. I can usually shut them up when I mention Mark McGuire and the email hacking. Sorry for that long into intro into my question, but here goes. Why is everyone only talking about the Astros in the scandal? There are so many articles and tweets about how awful they were. Uh, but what about the Sox or the Yankees? Why is everyone acting like the Astros are alone in this? Anyway, love the podcast. Been listening since day one. Definitely brings a smile to my face when I see a new episode. Well, gosh, Shelly, we are super grateful to have you. Um, glad you're such a sports fanatic and a sports fan as we are. And um and I think we kind of touched on the Yankees and the Red Sox before, but I will say because you're working in St. Louis that um, before the podcast off air, I mentioned to Jeff um, Joe Buck's response to the question about the uh, cheating scandal in baseball. And I thought his response was very appropriate, which is I think we're all crazy to think that the, uh, the Red Sox and the Yankees and the Astros are the only teams doing it. And that's pretty much all he said about it. So I think that what happens in our fandom, it sounds like you were a diehard Astros fan, Similar to this podcast is very Astros heavy. I think that you um, I think that you not you personally, but I think we're just focused on the Astros and we're hearing all the negative talk. And I think that the best advice is for somebody said it, look, if you want to post something on Twitter that's positive or if you want to say something uh, about your life on Twitter, that's great. But don't read the comments. It's a very good habit not to read the comments. I mean, I saw somebody crushing Scott Van Pelt this week for calling Staples Center the Staples Center. They kept saying, why does he keep saying the Staples Center? And, every, you know, most of the responses were like, oh, yeah, you're focused on the right thing. You know, like, hey, the <laughs> Staples Center, Staples Center. Um, I think that's what we have to do. You just have to block that out. I don't personally living on the left coast here. I don't I mean, my life is, does not revolve around the Astros and I don't hear the um the intensity, the vigor, and the I don't feel the weight of this being on the Astros. I do get a little pushback with my friends down here that are Dodger fans saying, hey, they got shortchanged or are screwed out of something. But even the Dodgers themselves, Justin Turner came out and said, we don't want a banner. We don't want a ring. We want to go out and earn one, and we want to hoist it ourselves now. And maybe that will give us some, you know, some motivation and the ability to rub the Astros nose in it. But basically, they don't want anything moving past. They want to look forward. And uh, and I suggest you do the same. Yeah, that's a, that was a great email. And I'm sorry I don't remember you, Shelly. Maybe I do. Maybe I don't. Uh, I'd have to put a face with the name. But uh, you want to the, – the reason – and this might be the arrogant baseball player in me. The reason that the Astros are being picked on and pointed out 
The reason that the Yankees have gotten a little bit, but they're obviously protected by Major League Baseball. I said it. And the Red Sox are getting thrown out there. Isn't it funny I haven't said anything about the Miami Marlins? Isn't it funny I haven't said anything about the Kansas City Royals? Isn't it funny that we haven't said anything about the Baltimore Orioles? There's a big difference between those ball clubs, and the biggest difference is those teams that are getting reprimanded and losing managers and being suspended are on top of the baseball mountain. That's why the target is on them. If you're leading the pack, everybody's looking at the back of your jersey and the target's on the back of your jersey and they're shooting for you. Maybe they're shooting for you on the field. Maybe they're shooting for you off the field, on Twitter, whatever it is. They're going to be aiming at the best. And just be uh, comfortable in the fact the Astros are a very good ball club and hopefully they prove that this year like Tuttle was saying. And uh, yeah, the vitriol is pretty bad down here being in this little, this, uh, being in that Astro fandom. But uh, just, just uh, hang in there. You'll be all right. All right. Yeah, that's I mean, I, I totally agree with you. I mean, I think we have to just kind of stay strong and stay strong in your belief and your fandom. And uh, and I think that things will work themselves up. But I think you're right. Winning is uh, being at the top of the mountain. People are always looking to knock you down. Let's just put it that way. Oh, here's a question. This question is from Lamar. Uh, Lamar, first off, let me say, I believe this is a case where the Astros were the unlucky ones to be made an example of for the rest of Major League Baseball. Huh? Funny how that piggybacks off the last question. I believe every team does some sort of sign stealing. Jim Crane says team will apologize. How is that going to go over to the players who did not participate? I know it'd be tough for me to say I'm sorry when I didn't do anything wrong. Boy, that sounds like my marriage. <laughs> um, love the podcast. On, on, on next episode. That's right. Love the podcast. Thanks for making long drives much better when listening. I mean, obviously, I'm joking with Lamar. But, yeah, I mean, it's always hard to apologize, especially when you don't feel like you did anything wrong. So I, I, I value the question. But I think if it's a collective apology, you're not really singling anybody out um, for the apology. And you're not really, you know. It's kind of a way to defer the uh, the responsibility, but also to let the fans know that they realize that there was an error made in that clubhouse. So, yeah, I think eventually, and we talked about it. I believe it was last podcast how we kind of mentioned, you know, what what can players do, or what is the expectation, and maybe it was a couple of a couple of podcasts ago because of Fan Fest, and there were a couple of canned, you know, premeditated responses from players that I don't think fans really enjoyed or appreciated, especially the critics of the Astro players really did not appreciate it. And they want a little bit more. It's kind of funny because if you ask those critics what they want, they don't even know what they want. You know, you could give them the best answer in the world or think they handled it the best they could, and they're going to find a way to pick that apart and be critical of what they're doing. So I think that in that sense you kind of need if you're a player just get out there and say hey i effed up i'm not gonna we're not gonna do it again it's not a culture it's not something we took pride in it's not this it's you know whatever you want to say and then say it's not going to happen again the best way we can you know gain your trust is to go out there and play our asses off win as many games as we can and create you know the a similar environment without all of the cheating or without all of the sign stealing in the upcoming season, and then you just move past it. But I think in order to move past it or create the opportunity where you can move past it, you do have to stand up there, have that microphone or 100 microphones in front of you, take the heat, hopefully represent yourself well enough and professional enough to answer the questions appropriately, 
and move on. Because if you don't, guess what? It's going to linger like crazy. And I want to say, you can even go back to, you know, one of our first 10 podcasts, we were talking about some interviews. You have, you take control of the narrative by what you say. And if you don't say anything and you, or you give a canned response, a premeditated response, you've got to expect the vitriol and the, the criticism to come back because you control the narrative. If you give that premeditated icy cold response, guess what you're going to get in return? A bitter icy cold response. So I hope that they do handle it. And I said spring training might be the environment they're able to do it in because it will be on their turf and maybe a little bit more of a controlled environment. But at some point, I do believe whether they do it as a group or whether they do it as individuals, they're going to have to stand up there and wear it. Yeah, and and I think we've already touched on the fact that they'll come out this year more motivated than ever. Um, you know, we've seen the statistics of home and away and all that stuff. Don't know how much it helped them. Obviously, it was an error in judgment. We've touched on that over and over and over. I will say this. That's and- a great. That's actually a great. Sorry to interrupt you, but I mean, hey, we had an error in judgment. We were winning. We did. I mean, there's ways to. There's just that's a great explanation. Well, and I was just going to add the A-Rod or the Andy Pettits of the world or even great, Jason yes, Giambi. Like when they came out and said, look, yeah, I did it. I mean, look, he did it like two or three times or he did it for his whole career. I mean, he did all <laughs> kinds of things, but he's moved on from it. Um, it's There's two sides of this coin. Everybody, you know, the Astros fans especially, were talking about the sign-stealing scandal, which is, you know, blew up on Twitter. And it's like, hey, Twitter this, Twitter that. And they're saying all these things. Well, I mean, that same short attention span works to your advantage when you come out and do a good job. Like A-Rod said, look, I'm really sorry for this. I realized the way my career ended wasn't appropriate. Yes, I was involved with Balco. Now I'm going to be a good analyst on Fox, and hopefully you remember me from that. And boom, yeah, well, good's all relative. But, I mean, people don't (laughs) talk about it. They talk about him and J-Lo and where they're vacationing. And, you know, what did A-Rod think about the batting stance or the 2-1 pitch? I mean, whether he's a great analyst, I guess, is still, you know, flip of a coin. But (laughs) – he, he has moved on, and I think that's enabled our short-term attention span or our short, our short attention span to move on as well. And I think that's what hopefully, if the Astros are forward-thinking, as you said, to be contrite and say, look, it was an error in judgment. We've moved on and then spend the whole year just playing baseball. I mean, we won't, I guess unless they win the World Series, uh, we won't be talking about this again, right? I mean, that'll come up each little time, but everybody knows they're not doing it at this point. So maybe it'll be a, a form of redemption or, um, you know, or uh, or like absolvement, I guess, for lack of a better word. No, I think that's a great call, man. All right. So last question. This one's a little bit long. Uh, I'm sorry, the question's short, but I'm not sure you'll have a uh, a response right away. So we can either save the response for next podcast, or if you have something, it's great. So this is from Jenny. Jenny C says, uh, what are your favorite baseball memories? Could be something personal or something you witness as a player or fan. I figured it'd be nice to submit a question, not about the scandal. Thanks y'all love your podcast. Well, thanks so much for that, Jenny. Yeah. It's always good to look back on baseball. And that's part of the issue. I think that not only fans with their particular teams or, you know, players with their particular actions. I think that's where everybody is kind of hurting and why you're hearing so many different voices and so many different articles are being written because even the media who covers this game loves the game of baseball. And I think that's where truly deep down, that's where the pain is in this scandal and the frustration and the anger is, is that somebody mucked up 
a game that we love to go watch and play and talk about and hear stories about and sit and have a dog and a beer and hang out with your buddy that you haven't seen in a year and a half. And all of a sudden, everything's back on the same level and everything's right in the universe. And I think right now, everything's upside down in the baseball universe. And that's why it's good to look back on some of these stories. And just real quick, I won't talk about the 2005 World Series for me personally because we know that might be number one on my list, but a great story that just popped into my head for whatever reason, and I know it involves with a guy who's been rumored to have been around PEDs, but I was playing second base when Barry Bonds hit home run number 715. And that's where the history of the game and the history, just realizing that you got to witness something like that, it still blows my mind away. I remember we were we were playing a glorified shift. I was playing second base, which was odd in itself, but I was playing a shallow right field. And all of a sudden, I just remember I was in the game, and I know I was on the pull side with Barry Bonds being a left-handed hitter at Petco Park. But at the same time, I vividly, vividly remember getting into the at-bat pitch by pitch because I knew there was the potential for history to be made. And I mean, I almost got on my heels, even thinking about it right now, I can feel myself getting on my heels because I was watching. I was watching the pitcher deliver and it felt like everything was in slow motion and Clay Hensley threw a fastball down and away and boom, it went out to right field. And I just kind of stood up and I heard the crowd, it was sold out. And then all of a sudden Barry's trotting around, I'm going, man, that just happened. I couldn't believe it. It was all, all of a sudden, it was, you know, the 1970s and the modern day version of Hank Aaron's trotting around the field. It was crazy. That's great. You know, if I were playing second base with Barry Bonds up, I'd just be worried about him hitting a rocket at me. Like, you know, hopefully he gets under it and drives it out of the park. Cause if he hits a two hop missile at you, it's like, Oh, I'd be, I'm on my heels. Thank you. Hey dude, that brings up another good point. My, my first first three years I was with the Montreal Expos and I told you everybody, you know, came up as a shortstop, eventually turned into a utility guy. But my third year in 2001, I'm playing first base in Montreal where they laid the turf basically over concrete. So it was a parking lot fast and Barry Bonds comes to the plate and I'm holding on like, I, man, I can't remember who I'm holding on. It was like Michael Tucker at first base or somebody. I can't even remember. And I'm standing there and I'm going, First pitch goes by, and I don't even think about it because I'm worried about holding the guy on. Are they going to pick over? What's happening? I get off first base, and I hear the first pitch pop, hits the glove, and I kind of stood up to go back to the bag, and I I went, oh, damn. I go, one of the biggest, baddest dudes on the planet is up at first base. If he scalds one down here, it's going to ricochet off my shin and go for a triple or something like that. But you're right. The self-preservation kind of kicks in. You're like, dude, I, 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 could, I could get – seriously harmed right here if he squares one up man 90 feet away from that dude not good no it's really funny because you know being around the game as long as we have i just remember when people would say you know oh yeah listen to him take batting practice the ball sounds different coming off his bat you, you finished 50 feet away from guys man oh man don't remind me that scares <laughs> the daylights out of me now that i'm old um let me let me jump on the memory thing i had like three things pop into my mind and I, i've always told you about winning like you know we won a championship in a ball with the same group of guys that mostly started the year that was so fun to dogpile and that whole thing was a blast but my favorite baseball memory um was way before i knew i was going to be a professional athlete i loved sports as a kid i was nine years old i lived in connecticut and i flew out to the west coast where my grandparents lived and i spent two weeks with my grandparents and my grandfather, who was into horses and loved to go up to Santa Anita and stuff, took me to Candlestick Park when I was nine years old. We sat up in the bleachers. Um, he was drinking a Heineken. I remember that. I don't know why. 
Uh, he drank Crazy. Heinekens a lot during the day. Thank you, Grandpa. <laughs> um, and I was nine years old, and it was the Cardinals and the Giants at Candlestick Park. And yes, folks, I mean, Candlestick Park is no longer there, but holy smokes. I mean, it was, you know, kind of a, a it was a day game in the middle of summer. Let's say it was June. It was probably like 55 degrees and windy. I mean, you know, the, the litter would get up against that fence. It was like chain link fence out there before they kind of did any alterations. Um, my wow. manager Wind must have been whipping through there. Yeah, that's right. My manager in AAA, uh, like maybe Johnny Lamaster was playing short, but my manager in AAA, Chris Fire, I think was on the team. Oh, wow. Was just hilarious. But anyway, Jerry Mumphrey playing for the Cardinals, left-handed hitter. You can look him up. Um, Jerry Mumphrey hit a foul ball right off the seat next to me. There was no one sitting there. <laughs> I remember that bright orange seat at Candlestick Park. Bam, it hit the seat and flew down into the, the lower level. We were right in the like upper level there. And I just, man, I, I remember that so vividly. And that wasn't the moment where it was like, yo, so I'm going to be a professional baseball player. But it was like, man, this is great. This is great. It was so cool to be at Candlestick Park, a sunny day and, you know, but cold and with my grandpa and, uh, and, you know, just, just a really fond memory of that. As you said, like peanuts and a beer and a ball game and all that stuff. It, it, it was just a great memory. And when I think about baseball, that's kind of the first thing that pops into my mind. Like, Hey, that's, I don't know if that's when I got bit by the bug or if that was, you know, just something that I remember fondly, but that that's, you know, that's a baseball memory I got now. I'll, I'll never forget that. Yeah. And I think a lot of people can relate to that too, because, you know, that's one thing that we all can share is being the fan of the game and showing up to a ballpark. And like you said, the smells, you know, no matter how grungy the ballpark was or how beautiful the ballpark was, you're, you're remembering the game. You're, rem you're remembering the people you remember. It's pretty impressive that you do remember the guy who hit the foul ball. That kind of gives you a, an idea of how that left such an indelible mark on you that you remember the guy's name. And, uh, you just remember the way things move that day. It's amazing how you can get so hyper-focused on those things too and remember the Heineken beer. But uh, that's what baseball does to us. And I think that's where the love for the game needs to come back a little bit and get back to the purity and the quote-unquote integrity that they do keep talking about in the game of baseball. So that is one thing that I know Tuttle and I are very appreciative of is the game itself and really want to get back to people remembering that this is a great game and what these guys do is incredibly remarkable on the field. And speaking of remarkable, we know that on this podcast at the end of every show, we like to give a shout out to military and first responders. And I am proud to tell you that today's Bleachers Bleacher Blums podcast is sponsored by Peterson's Test Prep. For over 50 years, Peterson's has helped active duty service members, veterans, and first responders advance their careers. Whether you're looking to join the military, advance within the military, or transition to a civilian career, Peterson's helps you on your journey. Peterson's provides online learning courses and test preparation for military exams like the ASVAB and the AFOQT, as well as career licensure exams needed to become an EMT, paramedic, or law enforcement officer. Make sure you visit Peterson's at www.petersons.com and use, we've got a code for you, use the code BASEBALL during checkout for 20% off your first purchase. For every path, there is a test. And for every test, there's Peterson's, www.petersons.com. Nice work. 
I uh, I wanted to uh, bring up Kobe. I think we we touched on it at the outset. I think it'd be silly to have a podcast this week and not mention Kobe Bryant. Um, and I wanted to mention it not not to be different, but I wanted to mention it in a different light. And I'm not a huge Laker fan. Uh, I have tons of friends that are huge Laker fans that are you know people that are involved with the Lakers. I have a really good friend who's in sports memorabilia, and he has tons of Lakers memorabilia, including a bunch of Kobe jerseys and things like that. Um, I mean, he's involved in the business, the buying and selling. So he 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 has some in inner workings with the Lakers, and I know he was crushed by this. But uh, I wanted to, to kind of just lay out my initial thoughts about losing Kobe, and 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 I think, you know, obviously a superstar athlete and a world famous human being. And I know folks don't want to lose sight of the other people that were on the airplane, including a, a baseball coach that's uh, near and dear to everybody here in Orange County, John Altabelli. But uh, but I just want to say that it's not that he is the that he was uh, a famous athlete and a world renowned figure that really, I think, put a damper on the uh, environment down here in Orange County in Southern California. But it's the fact that he was a father taking his kid to uh, a travel ball game, which I do all the time. I was driving up to Downey this weekend because I had a soccer tournament with my daughter. And and I think that's part of the impact is like, hey, we can all relate to just taking your kid to a uh, to a travel ball game, whether it be volleyball or softball or baseball or soccer. It doesn't really matter. You can relate to taking your kids to all these activities. Um, granted, we had never done it on a helicopter, but I don't think that part matters. I mean, there's plenty of car accidents every weekend. And I mean, it just made me think a little bit longer and a little bit harder about how precious these times are. And then the other thing I think that I, I don't know if people have touched on, but it's really the collective sorrow. When you lose lose somebody like that, I think it's not that it impacted me so personally. Um, it impacted some friends of mine more personally, but it impacted your neighbor. It impacted the person down the street. And so when you meet up with them, you know, 20 or 30 people, that sorrow is pretty heavy in the room. And I think that's part of the effect that we're all feeling. But uh, anyway, obviously wanted to not go the whole week without mentioning uh, the fact that we lost Kobe Bryant this week. And uh and it was a, a definitely a tragedy, and hopefully, um, as people tend to do, uh, we can take a little more comfort in the fact that we can, you know, squeeze our family a little tighter and think about um, each moment a little more preciously. Yeah, sometimes moments like this actually help us understand that we do appreciate our family members and do appreciate the time we do have with them. So yes, I hope that was, is a byproduct of Kobe's passing with his daughter Gianna that you you understand that time is is precious it does go by extremely fast and it can leave in a in a moment but uh, I'm I'm with you in the sense that uh, we can relate because we are parents of kids it, you know it sparked the girl the hashtag girl dad thing online which I thought was great and gave recognition to those fathers and those kids that uh, rely on family for everything um, I think it's important to note, too, I know that we're not a major journalistic podcast, but at the same time, you heard uh, Tuttle mention John Altabelli. He was on the uh, the helicopter with Carrie and Alyssa, his wife and one of his daughters. Christina Mauser was the coach of the team who was on that helicopter. Sarah and Peyton Chester were teammates and a mother. And, of course, the the pilot, Ara Zobayan, I believe, if I'm not saying that right, I apologize, but there were nine people on that uh, on that tragic crash on the helicopter. But you know, you're going to remember Kobe for a lot of different reasons, and I think that there was an es there was an article in the Esquire that 
that really eloquently put together the, the encompass, and encompassed the entire life of Kobe because he was a phenomenal athlete, came out of high school, went straight to the pros, and I think he became the youngest player ever to play in the NBA at the time when he made a, you know, a couple of free throws. And so you put him in that position, and then he had the issue in Colorado. And, you know, I think – and just reading some of the reports and hearing some of the people talk about him, that was, in, I believe, in the first three years of his NBA career. And the article did a really good job of saying – of recognizing the fact that he did have – a, a you know a major a major downfall in, at some point in his career but you know different people are going to react in different ways but i think from what we're hearing and what we're seeing and the way we see him interacting with his family he really worked hard to maintain the marriage and to maintain the fatherly figure that he was and you could see the passion that he did have at least in Gianna because she was the most visible sitting courtside with him so on the player side He's one of the greatest basketball players, greatest athletes I have literally ever seen in my life. And it was a pleasure to watch him play. It was a pleasure to see him, you know, create the Mamba Sports Academy and, and, and try and create an environment where kids can try and chase their dream and become as good as he was. But I think the one thing that I'm going to miss and the one thing that most impressed me about Kobe Bryant was that Mamba mentality. I had no freaking clue what a Mamba was until he declared himself the Black Mamba. And there were a couple of, you know, quotes. One of the quotes I remember hearing from his, from him was about last second shots. And he flat out said, he goes, I want to take every single last second shot. And, he, and they're like, why do you want to be the, do you want the glory? He goes, no, because I don't care if I miss. And I thought that was fascinating to me because everybody wants to take the last second shot to be the hero. And he was more often than not. But I think it was that fearlessness that he went out there and played with that we really try to tap into with great athletes is what is that mentality and is that something I can put into an average player and make him better? And I think that's where he kind of uh, you know, created a, an avenue for people to enjoy the way he played because he was so aggressive on the court and was willing to take over games literally. Yeah, and I, I'll just finish with this. You brought up the Colorado incident. I thought it was really interesting that, um, you know, maybe there are different uh, news outlets and different takes on the story. But the quote I read um, that somebody pulled out of the archives was that, you know, initially when it was happening, Kobe thought one thing and then he realized that she didn't feel the same way. And I thought that's a really insightful way to look at it in the sense that instead of, you know, sticking to your guns and saying this and that. So, you know, regardless of the specifics around that, I thought it was very um, indicative maybe of his personality and his uh, his willingness to get better. And I also, I also think it relates to what we said earlier about our uh, short attention span. I mean, he was contrite about it. He apologized. He said he thought about it differently. And look what he was able to create moving forward. So, I mean, we can have blips on our radar. You and I have already touched on the fact that I don't know how we would survive in a in a Twitter social media environment um, oh, while being a young man and, and, and all of that. Um, but, but obviously uh, basketball lost a legend and, you know, Gigi and uh, Kobe are gone from Vanessa and the rest of the kids. And that's, that's really the tragedy there. And so hopefully, as I already touched on, we squeeze our family a little tighter and we take a little more comfort in the fact that we have another day here with them. Yeah, so some big losses in the uh, baseball community, big loss in the NBA community, obviously. And obviously, there's some families hurting down there in Southern California. So our thoughts and prayers are with them. And that's going to bring me to the next topic I want to bring up. Tuttle is uh, on the baseball side is a possible addition to the Astros. And 
a lot of talk about the managerial search they are on. I've heard a couple of names thrown around in the GM job, but I was kind of curious that they're going after the manager first. And there have been, I think, nine names thrown out there. And just a quick uh, rundown of a couple of them, Buck Walter, John Gibbons, Jeff Bannister, Will Venable, Mark Kotze, Dusty Baker, Joe Espada, Brad Osmus. I know there's somebody I'm missing in there, but Yesterday, there were reports coming out saying that Dusty Baker has emerged as the guy for the Astros. Again, that's yet to be confirmed. A lot of stories coming out and obviously uh, a lot of articles being written. But I know you have experience uh, watching Dusty Baker as the manager of the San Francisco Giants, which I think is an interesting he's got interesting experiences out there dealing with the Jeff Kent, Barry Bonds situation. They obviously won. He had a great team. So he's been to the World Series and understands how to manage a, a top flight ball club. He's managing a big market in the Chicago Cub and managing the Chicago Cubs. But for me, and I'm not sure what your initial reaction was to it, because there's some good names on that list and some interesting names, and everybody's gonna have their own opinion. But just on Dusty Baker for me, he was the safe pick. You know, I think he was the the he was the positive image. He's the mature image. He's a fatherly guy. I think he uh, has a little bit of fire that we don't know about deep within his belly. A, a friend of mine sent me a video of him and uh, Tony Larusa getting after it. And I think 2003 when he was the manager of the Cubs. So there's some, there's some fight for his players in there. And also I think that being in a big market helps. So he's going to be able to handle the media and hopefully uh, help his players get through this tough time. As far as the media is concerned and handling uh is some of these road trips, which are going to be pretty gnarly. And at the same time, I already mentioned, dealing with Jeff Kent and Barry Bonds, you may not have that inside the Astros clubhouse, but you're definitely going to run into some personalities. Because I think that once you get on some of these ball clubs that have some of these you know, superstar personalities, sometimes it can create a little bit of an issue or there can be a rift because there has been a severe shakeup within the organization. And now he's going to come into a situation where he's going to try and lead a very good team back to the World Series. But I just want to know off the top, what what um, what are some of the good things that you think about Dusty? And what was your initial reaction when you heard his name come up? Yeah, not being an Astros homer. I mean, I think it, it is the best choice. I don't know if it's a, the safest choice. I, I, I do think, you know, obviously after AJ left San Diego and got a chance with Houston, he had to kind of make a name for himself. And that looked like obviously the uh, uh, the right decision. And, and, and it was the right decision. Um, it, it brought a smile to my face because we keep talking about the unwritten code in baseball about not outing things that uh, or not saying thing about not referencing anything that goes on in the clubhouse. But everybody in baseball knows the difficulty with which Barry Bonds and Jeff Kent kind of brooded around the clubhouse. I mean, I have friends that were in that clubhouse, uh, former teammates and friends, and I know you do as well. But nobody has ever come out and written an article about actually the things that went down in there. But man, Jeff Kent... <laughs> Barry Bonds got Barry Bonds got a rough reputation for being kind of uh, not just arrogant, but kind of you know aloof and standoffish and get out of my way. And Jeff Kent maybe topped him. You know, I mean, you probably have some stories <laughs> from college. I mean, he, he Jeff Kent just wants to be on his farm in Texas, and I don't know. I mean, you know, everybody approaches their job differently, but I think it's funny that 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 just is common knowledge when nobody's actually ever you know specified an incident. But but back to Dusty Baker, I think. Safe just seems like an easy word, and I'm not I'm not trying to put you on the spot. Just I think Dusty Baker, if he's still young and energetic enough, is an outstanding decision. You have a veteran ball club, or an outstanding choice, I should say. You have a veteran ball club that actually does seem to get along. 
I mean, those guys are playing for each other. They've all kind of come up through the ranks together and they've been successful together. Um, regardless of what you think about the sign ceiling or whatever. I mean, they're, they're a championship caliber ball club. And I think Dusty Baker has experience with that um, from a left coast guy. Like I said, we got to see him at the Giants. I mean, Dusty Baker was a mainstay on the Dodgers way back when. He's played the game. Oh, he man, understands yeah. the game. He's had success managing the game. And I, I would love to see Dusty. This is where my, my Homer mentality comes in. Get a chance to redeem himself for 2002 when, uh, <laughs> when he took our, when he took uh, That was Rush Ortiz. Yeah. Oh, he took Russ Ortiz out of the game in the seventh inning. You know, I would say I'd never forget it, but I blocked out Russ's name. Um, I know Russ and Shad, his brother, really well. And I just thought, man, that it would be so great to see Dusty Baker come in there and take them to a World Series championship and uh, get some sort of redemption for that. And I know that's not what he's out for. But, uh, you know, I mean, there's nothing wrong with being a lifer in the game if you if you are true to yourself and you've had success. And I think Dusty Baker could bring that to Houston. You know, he would be a, a certainly a good captain of that ship. I don't know enough about, like you said, Marcotze would be a stretch. You know, he's, he's not managed before in the big leagues. He had success in the big leagues. He's probably hard-nosed and all that kind of stuff. So maybe Marcotze gets a chance to be the next A.J. Hinch somewhere else. Um, but I think Jim Crane, I guess that's where the safe word comes in. Jim Crane's making the decision based on somebody who's had managerial experience, some success in the playoffs, and has been around the game. So, I, I, you know, overall, regardless of how you want to define it, I think it's an excellent choice. Yeah, I agree with you. And uh, But yet to be confirmed. I think the only drawback for me with uh, Dusty, and again, we're not in on the interviews. I don't know what's going on inside these interviews. But I, I, I've talked to enough ex-managers and current managers to, and I, I'll pick their brains about it because I'm curious about it. You know, what is the interview process like? What are the type? So I, I constantly hear that they're going to put, you know, they fire situations at you, you know. They'll, they'll pick, you know, World Series moments over the last 10 years and go, how would you do it, you know? And uh, the only thing I think that might be a drawback, but at the same time, who knows, Dusty's, you know, old dog, new tricks, you know, the analytic part of it, that's going to be, a, you know, a heavy lift for him. I think trying to understand and, you know, just on a, just alone, the analytics, but then you move into the Astros where it's hyper analytic, you know, it's like at warp speed. So he's going to get a little bit of a crash course on crash, crash course on how to handle that stuff. But I think that's where it'll be interesting. If, you know, does Joe Espada stay as the bench coach and help him out in that sense, because Joe's already got two years under his belt with the Astros. So, that's really the only drawback for me. Is there anything that uh, you might think be a, might be an issue for Dusty? I don't know. I mean, I think the analytics, I think he's obviously uh, intelligent enough to understand the analytics. How they implement them is always different, right? Because it's that it's that constant balance between your gut and then what the statistics tell you. And I think, you know, the old school managers tend to go with their gut. But, you know, I don't really see a drawback there. Um you know, I think it would be just as challenging for like a new manager. You know, I already brought up Kotze, but, you know, after watching Brad Osmus, and I know you know him, but after watching him do a seven pitcher change in a meaningless game out in Anaheim last year, I mean, he's off my list. So, I mean, either he was looking at the <laughs> analytics or he was trying to be a pain in the ass. I know you know him. If I see him at St. Arnold Brewing Company, he can punch me. That's fine. I just, <laughs> Brad, Brad lost, he lost me on that list when he, uh, when he did that seven pitcher change in a two out span. And uh, I think, you know what I'm referencing, but uh, oh, yeah. you know, I don't know if that was over analytics or if he was just trying to needle people. So if he's trying to needle people, I guess I have more respect. So, you know, if he's using analytics and dusty's not, then I'm choosing dusty. And that's 
yeah, I think that's a little bit of going to school from the Mike Sosha co coaching school of how, on how to use the bullpen is just to obliterate, you know, the pace of play and go out there and play matchup pitch by pitch. It felt like and going through seven pitchers. Yeah, September's going through. I think that. Sosha and the Angels might be the reason that we are we might have those condensed rosters in September. Uh, that had to be a huge conversation. But uh, to be honest, there is a little bit of Brad who would probably be doing that on purpose just to piss everybody off. Uh, but uh, good stuff. Kudos I agree to him then. He's back on my list. Right. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, he's got enough of an edge to him and a little bit, uh, you know, of. Uh, I don't want to say arrogance because it's it's just you know there's an edge to him that says oh oh you think that's bad I can make it worse right and yeah all he of might have been upset with the umpire right all, all the yeah it could rough. have been anything oh we're doing a pitcher change again and Brad's like oh yeah you thought two was enough I'm gonna do seven in the next two yeah so you're right I like that I mean that's the competitive you know we we were not privy to that I just happened to witness it live and uh, and that's kind of yep. an inside joke but uh, yeah I mean I I don't see a problem with Dusty in there um, you probably have a little more inside knowledge with how they use the analytics and honestly I mean Aaron Boone talked about um, having an analytics guy and he spoke about it. I think remember they were saying about the guy yep. with the iPad there saying hey you know Aaron this is what you do and you know if if Brad Osmus is anything like Aaron Boone and Aaron Boone anything Brad, I mean you know. Aaron could give you the thumbs up and like, all right, thanks, buddy, and like beat it and then do what he's <laughs> going to do, right? Because we know where the, the buck stops, so. Yeah, give him the happy Gilmore treatment. Yeah, that sounds great. I'll see you there. <laughs> give the exactly. thumbs down. Yeah, so, uh, you know, I think he could get up to speed. Yeah. How about this? Speaking of managers, how about coaching, like take the three major sports. If we go NBA, NFL, Major League Baseball, how much of an effect do the coaches have on their game itself? And how much control do you think that they really have over their teams? Because I think there's stark differences between the NFL, the NBA, and Major League Baseball on what the expectation of coaching is. What are your ideas on that? Oh, man, that's a big, that's a lot to unpack. I mean, I, ha I definitely have thoughts on it. I, I think... Well, I think each sport is different. I mean, I really think basketball. You watch basketball, which I don't watch a lot in the playoffs, and they're like, oh, coming out of the timeout, he drew up the best play. You know? <laughs> I mean, I think, whoa. And it's but true. But that's what I feel like, a play. Yeah, that's right. They, But, but I mean, you can just see coaching have an impact because they, they're starting to look at things. Same with same with football because it's plays. Uh, I listened to Gardner Minshew was on one of the World Series, or World Series, one of the Super Bowl, everyone's live in, you know, Super Bowl. Uh, media road. Yeah. It's like, all right. But Gardner Minshew was talking about Mike Leach this morning. He said, Mike Leach is the greatest. I guess, first of all, a little side note, Mike Leach said to Gardner Minshew, who was uh, heading to Alabama to kind of be the third string quarterback out of, out of high school from Mississippi. And Leach said, do you want to uh, be a backup at Alabama or do you want to come lead the nation in passing at Washington Ooh, State? I like it. Gardner Minshew, let, Gardner Minshew led the nation in passing at Washington State his senior year. But he said that Mike Leach made it very simple. And this is college versus pro. So you're asking about coaching. It was like, all right, there's we have three guys over there and they have two. So we're going to throw the ball over to that side. Oh, they have four over here and we have three. We're going to run the ball this way. Like he said, it was that simple. It was like math. You just count people and look at space. And I think, you know, that's a super unique way of doing it. But I do think having played high school football and, you know, had the potential to play college football and looking at 
how call it or how football coach. I mean, you could get yelled at. You know, they grab you by the face mask mm -hmm. and yell at you and all that stuff. That doesn't fly in baseball. And so I think to kind of just take an overview of your question, I think basketball and football, the coaches have a little more impact and they certainly have a little more say so in there. Um, obviously, salaries come into play. But I think baseball is really funny in that I, I've known a few high powered CEOs um, that run companies. And I think that's the question I always ask them. It'd be like, you know, what's your methodology? Kind of what's your strategy? And to a man, I mean, all two or three people, right, in my little circle that I've asked, said that they try and hire really good people and deal with as few issues as possible, you know, because they have a better overview like structure. And I really relate that to being a baseball manager. You have to have the respect of the clubhouse and you have to leave them alone at specific times. And then, you know, when you get involved, it should be a really important issue to get involved on. And if you're respected, your voice will be heard in that scenario. And I think that's how you kind of lead men. I don't think it's like, oh, we bunted them over in this situation. All right, we're going to steal them. And all right, shift over here. I mean, that's part of the analytics. But I don't think baseball coaching that, like that makes you the most successful manager. Yeah. And I think in baseball, you constantly hear the, the term overmanaging or over this game was overmanaged. He went too far. And that, you know, that's where I think Tuttle makes a great point is that managing in baseball, you're managing, you're not coaching them up. You're managing them. You're putting them in, you're putting them in positions to succeed and relying on their talent to overwhelm the game, to win the game. And I think the NFL is where, you know, scheming comes in great, where you got to kind of have the, you know, all the heads together and, uh, create the create the situation of the scheme to beat somebody else's scheme. So I think coaching impacts it in that sense. The NBA is a little bit different for me in the sense that you can set up plays for one guy. If you've got that superstar, if you've got the James Harden on your team, if you've got the LeBron James, okay, we can set up a play for that guy to go out there and score. But uh, So that is a little bit different. But how about you bringing up the corporations and leadership? Because sometimes CEOs and, you know, those people can, you know, people underneath them, management can be like the, the coaching staffs of the corporation. How rare is it that in sports, the true leader, the manager, the head coach uh, is sometimes paid less than the players. Isn't that bizarre having, so basically the employee is making more than the owner. And that's what's wild to me. So how do you control that? That's where I think the uniqueness of coaching in professional sports is, how do you manipulate that attitude and create an environment where you can coach a guy who basically could turn around and flip you off and say, who cares? I'm making 20 million guaranteed for the next seven years. You've got a two year contract at 2 million a year. You're gonna, you're gonna be long gone. You know, that's where I think this day and age coach has got to be pretty special as far as the psychology of it. Yeah, for sure. For sure. And I, I, I but uh, you know, the, the 20 versus two, I don't know. I mean, maybe that is a little bit of the equation or certainly you have more experience with that one than I do. But I, I mean, I work in the real world where the sales guys typically make, make more than the managers and some of the people above them because you have like uncapped. So, I mean, I know a guy that doesn't work sales, but he runs a team for software and he's got four or five guys that are making way more than he is. And he's nice. like, man, I should, he, but he's like, I should have got into sales. Like he's <laughs> jealous, right? So you have this jealousy thing. And very often those sales guys are like, oh, you don't like me? I'll go somewhere else and sell as well. So you do have that 
similar structure, I guess I'm saying, I mean, in, in a sales organization with management that you do in, in professional athletics. And I think um, very often, yeah, it's a delicate balance, like most of these things, right? There's a dichotomy. You mostly have like good leadership that kind of manages, as you said, manages the game. But I do... I do see football and basketball as different. Maybe basketball is an outlier, but you were saying they coach for one play or one player. I think, you know, I think basketball coaching is very similar to base uh, football coaching in that they look for mismatches and when they set up plays, they, you know, isolate or they do whatever. Or, you know, in football, you already touched on, we want to get the running back matched up on a linebacker, you know, running out of the backfield because, you know, he's slower. Those kind of things are more um, finger on the pulse and, you know, thumb on the thumb on the button than baseball, which is, as you said, managing. And I, and I think it is probably hard for some of those guys. Um, I, I guess I, I relate it to somebody saying, well, you didn't even play the game, right? That one, like, you know, mm -hmm. being a pitching coach is like, look, I could be a damn good pitching coach. Not, not, you know, just because I didn't play in the big leagues doesn't mean I can't understand the analytics and look at your mechanics and fix it. I mean, that, that, those two things are disparate, but I, I will say there's could be, as you said, uh, during the mailbag, maybe this sounds like a an arrogant baseball player answer. There there are some guys that they do. They look at that and they go, well, this guy has no idea what he's talking about. He doesn't make as much money as I do. Mm -hmm. uh, he's never made it to the level that I made it to. So, you know, you you have to really work to earn respect in a scenario or an environment like that. Yeah, and when you're managing your coaching teams, to lead into my next subject is – You've got to deal with referees. You've got to deal with uh, umpires. And I'm not sure if you read the news, but this year in Major League Baseball, guess who's getting a microphone? Joe West. We're giving umpires microphones. I would imagine it's going to be the crew chief because the crew chiefs are usually on every re replay review on the field. And they have, they have said, we're going to give a microphone and we're going to get an ex explanation like you do in the NFL uh, you know, why the tag play wasn't enforced. I think it would have been really interesting to hear what they would have said last year in the World Series with Trey Turner going down first base, trying to explain that in front of 40,000 people would have been highly entertaining. But are you concerned about this at all? Or how do you feel about it? Because I've written down a couple of notes that uh, I'm like, I'm worried about pace of play. Because if I give Joe West a microphone, it may be like, well, goddamn, this guy got in the way of that guy, and it's a, that's, that's a, you know, we can't do that. <laughs> We're going to move on. And then I'm worried about the guy uh, who is a Jim Wolf. I don't know if you've seen this dude. He's jacked. He's going to be the next Ed Hockey Lee. He's going to be out there giving us arm motions and flexing, getting some screen time, man. I'm a little worried. <laughs> you know, uh, I mean, they're obviously, you know, Many ways we can go with this. I mean, public speaking is a learned art, as we know, just like <laughs> podcasting and, you know, getting Joe West on a microphone. I mean, the umpires that I remember talking to uh, were very much similar to sailors and ballplayers. So Good point. There, yeah. there was a little colorful language. I guess it's nice that they're giving them the mic like they're not mic'd up the whole game. They're giving them the mic to explain, right, to explain the play. Yeah. Uh, we might be in for some entertainment, but hopefully... I mean, how many reviews per game are there? Usually it's a call, like, first, first, it's like three reviews a game. Yeah, oh, okay. It's like three oh. reviews a game. And, this is why I love you so and much. Just like, keep going. All right, and it's like safe or out. I mean, you're like, all right, so yeah. if they can't get on there and go, ladies and gentlemen, uh, his foot hit the bag before the ball went in the glove. Thank you very much. Like, I mean, this should not be like the NFL where it's like, well, 
the ball was in the air and the defender had his back to him. And so, you know, no, I mean, I know. Yeah. Yeah. So it's targeting, right? And, and they do the targeting <laughs> thing now and then they have the review for. So anyway, so I, again, just to kind of we're already on the slippery slope. I mean, the, re, the re, replay we didn't go to, but, you know, gosh, with uh, the Rudolph play, Minnesota versus New Orleans a couple weeks oh. ago, the pass interference, they were saying, oh, should they review that? And that was egregious or wasn't it? I mean, we should already in basketball, they're starting to review more. We should already know that this is not a place we should be going. But I do think adding a microphone and an explanation will lead us to the next thing, which will be like balls and strikes, um, you know, being automated or computerized. And uh, I'm really scared about that. Yeah, but I appreciate the fact that you asked me which plays are actually getting reviewed because if you go to BaseballSavant.com like I did, you can get all the information you need. And 41% of the time, it was a replay on a tag play. The, what, 29% were plays at first. 7% were home runs. And force plays were at 6.5%. And 6% were hit by pitch. So, I mean, that kind of gives you the bulk of what's going on. But also at the same time, I'm sure you're, you're, you're just on the edge of your seat, fascinated by the numbers I'm about to give you. So overall, out of 100%, 52% of the calls were not overturned. So the umpires won in that angle. 48% were overturned. As far as reviews are concerned, there were 1,442 reviews overall in Major League Baseball last season. The Astros, do you want to give a guess on how many reviews the Astros went for last year, just for the fun of it? Out of the 1,000 there? What was Out it, of, 1, yeah, 1,400. Uh, 10? Ooh, actually a pretty low call, but 39. So it right. came out to 2.7% of the time. The Astros were asking for a call. I'm not going to tell you who got uh, the most uh, reviews because I don't care. Uh, the umpires reviewed by themselves. 156 plays. So they doubted themselves 11% of the time and went to the replay review booth. So it's just some fun with numbers that we actually got for you here on Bleacher Blums. Great numbers. Baseofallsavant.com is a great website. We obviously, I didn't know this was going to be part of the topic for the day, but I'm glad I was able to kind of get into that percentage thing. I mean, I, I think from an explanation standpoint, and other listeners can probably attest to this. I mean, like the home run, you said that was 7% of the time. That's an easy one. Like if you can't, if Joe West can't get on explain, it was a home run or it wasn't a home run. Like that was really easy. You know what's terrible is that you bring him up. He jacked up one in the World Series in 2017 for Jose Altuve. Oh man, he can he can screw that up. No, he can screw it up, but he can't screw up the explanation, right? So now you we're hope. talking about two different things, right? I, I'm not saying he won't screw the call up, and then they look <laughs> at replay. That the call is fine, but good point. The explanation should be very straightforward. It should be. <laughs> That's 7% of the time. Yes, it was over the line. No, it wasn't, you know, or we can't overturn it, whatever it is. Boom, explanation done. So I love it. All right, that should lead us into, I don't even want to call it don't bet on it. We are at an hour and 15 minutes, Blummer. What in the world happened to our podcast, folks? It used to be about 45 minutes, and it turned into 55. Now we're at an hour and five. But I did want to touch on the Super Bowl, the don't bet on it. We already talked about it last time. I'm taking the Niners. You're taking the Chiefs. I like the Niners plus two, but I will take them outright in this little bet. Uh, the one re response I saw, somebody said we should bet a local six-pack, which is fine. Yep. Uh, I'm good with that. Uh, you get to pick the brewery, like Pizza Port or Artifacts or something in your old hometown there. 
Uh, Lost Winds is down there. That's good beer. And I think, uh, isn't uh, Artifacts have Heavy Hand? I think it's Heavy Hands or something like that. I I'm going to have to investigate. Yeah, yeah. well, hey, some good you, ones. I wouldn't get too deep into your investigation because I think I'm going to have to look at the uh, local Houston, uh, certainly the St. Oh, Ar really? Arnold Smorgasbord. Okay. to be coming my way. Come on, Pat Mahomes. <laughs> Come on, defense. That's all I got. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, that's all I wanted to bring up about the Super Bowl. Yeah, and uh, I think that's been a pretty good podcast. I just want to throw in a little note is uh, Chris Bryant uh, lost his case as far as trying to get his uh, service time suppressed and become a free agent at the end of 2020. He failed to win that case. He will now become a free agent in 2021. I think that really ups his trade value now. And that's only interesting to me because I heard Nolan Arenado's name thrown out there as a possibility coming to the Astros. And I think Chris Bryant might fall in, into that same category if he's tradable. But if Nolan Arenado somehow becomes a, an Astro, obviously they're going to have to trade away a superstar to get that guy back. But, oh boy, I, I would be one happy camper to watch Nolan Arenado in an Astro uniform. I, I think the one, I mean, anybody would. Gosh, he was rumored to go to the Giants. One thing oh, I man. do know is that Colorado pissed him off and they're going to have Big trouble time. keeping him. I mean, like one of the best players in the game, everybody else wants That's him. That's a what huge topic that went overlooked, man. I'm with you on that. Yeah, I forgot. I wrote notes on that too, but we can bring that up next time as well. Gosh, I mean, by then we might even have more uh, hot stove rumors True. about it, but you know, it's got to be, it's like going to your house after an argument with your wife. It's like, hmm, do I go in the kitchen? She's in the kitchen. I'm not really sure, man. I mean, it would really be frustrating to be uh, a Colorado Rocky front office guy. And now you've just upset this guy who's coming into the clubhouse and doing the workouts. And it's like, he doesn't really feel comfortable there. He's not going to speak to you because he doesn't know what's going on, you know, in terms of trust. And uh, I think the one big hindrance for uh, Houston, and this is why Chris Bryant might be a better option is that, uh, Bregman. I mean, Bregman and Arenado both got those big deals. I mean, mm -hmm. I, I can get into the salary cap and the nuts and bolts of when, you know, when these salaries actually hit um, kind of the payroll and the luxury tax and all that. But man, having Bregman and Arenado on the same team would be great. But as you said, do you keep Altuve and Correa? Or I mean, that there was just a lot of moving parts there. Man, yeah. Chris Bryant is different because he doesn't have the long-term deal yet. He's not a free agent. You could plug him in with those guys at least for a year or two and then see where that goes. So um, is that the hearing? And we're going to bore the fans with this. Is Super 2, he came yeah. up a yep. little bit late. He was a Super 2 and then tried to get you know the arbitration yeah. and all that stuff started earlier. And they denied him, I guess, the, the um, service time. No, you're exactly right. They denied him the service time, so they said he wasn't eligible to gain free agency earlier, but he lost the case, and all that really does, to be honest with you, is sparks the CBA conversation that's coming up at the end of 2021, where I think players are really going to fight back against some of the arbitration years and Super 2 numbers that we continue to talk about, but I think that's pretty much going to do it for this Episode of Bleacher Blums. I mean, I still have a list of things that I could go through. Uh, I was going to rant about the Grammys, but I think we've done plenty of good stuff within this podcast. You want to send us home? Yeah, sure. I mean, I had I had some stuff on Grammys, Phil Rivers, Tom Brady, things like that. We can get to that. I want to get into that. I want to get into the quarterback conversation. I think it's really fascinating. Oh, damn it. I think it's really fascinating that some of the best free agent quarterbacks out there are fossils. Yeah, they're old. I agree. Isn't it funny? And I thought, and oh man, I thought we we're going to end this podcast. I thought it was. And funny they've been that, with teams for extended amount of time too. 
Yeah, well, I thought it was funny that they keep talking about Tom Brady now as a draw in San Diego. You get yeah. rid of Philip Rivers and bring in Tom Brady. It's like, wait a second. Like, Tom so Brady's room. smaller and less mobile. <laughs> I mean, now he may be a better quarterback, like, cerebrally and make less mistakes than Philip Rivers, but it's almost like a like-for-like -like trade. The only difference is the six Super Bowls. And as somebody uh, more powerful than I did in the media said— Philip Rivers, nobody even knows that they moved from San Diego to L.A. If Tom Brady came to L.A., people would be buying his powder blue number 12 jersey like hotcakes. So there is a subtle Damn. difference there. Um, I will take us out. We want to, as always, give a shout out to the first responders and the military folks. Uh, we've, we touched on it with the tragedy that happened this week. Obviously, those folks were on call and are still working at the crash site and doing those things. I mean, these are things that nobody wants to do. Um, for the most part, and they're out there doing it. And we take a lot of pride in the fact that they're doing it. And, um, you know, the fact that we have a new sponsor, Peterson's, that works with the military is outstanding. Hopefully that will that will go a long way um, to uh, engage us with the service members that we, uh, that we respect so much. Good stuff. That's going to do it for this episode of Bleacher Blums. We appreciate everybody tuning in. Make sure you pass the word. This podcast has been picking up steam. We appreciate everybody listening, subscribing, rating, reviewing. Get on it. Get after it. Most of all, believe it.